I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, actually our texts, plural, Romans 15, verse 13, which has sort of been a theme verse uh, for us in this series. That's on page 922, if you're using the Bibles in the pews. And then uh, you can also open to Isaiah chapter 12, which is on page 563. So like I said, we've been using sort of two different texts each week as we go through this Advent season. We've been using uh, that verse from Romans as sort of a theme verse uh, in this series and then digging a little deeper uh, into a chapter from Isaiah each week. So this is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome back then as well as to us as the church today. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then flipping to Isaiah chapter 12, the prophet writes this. He says, in that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, as we've been talking about, the season of Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of waiting on the Lord, a season of waiting for Christ our Savior, a season of waiting for all that God will do as he works to redeem and restore this world. As we've said, that waiting has two parts. First, in Advent, we commemorate the waiting that God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, did for centuries as they waited for God's Savior to come. But as people of that Savior today, As believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians, our waiting during this season of Advent is more than just commemorative. That's because while the Israelites waited for Christ's first coming, we as his people today wait for his second. We wait for him to come back. We wait for him to come again. We wait for the day when he will come and finally bring to fulfillment all that he began to do during his first coming. And so Advent points us back to Christmas, yes, but it also points us ahead. It points us to what's still to come. It points us to what's still to happen, to what's still in the future when Christ comes back. As such then, and we've been talking about this uh, throughout this series, uh, Advent forms a couple historic Christian values or qualities in us. For instance, and we looked at this two weeks ago, Advent makes us people of hope. People who can look into the future and know, really know, that what we believe will someday come true. Second, Advent makes us people of love, people who show deep affection and commitment, not just to God, but to each other and to those outside the church as well. And then Advent makes us people of joy, 
and it makes us people of peace. And so what we've been doing very simply during the season of Advent here at Ivanrest Church is walking our way through those different values, talking about hope, love, joy, and peace, and how it is that people, that us as people waiting for our Savior can become people of hope, love, joy, and peace. And so this morning we continue with the third one. We continue with joy. That's really what our passage this morning is about. It's about joy. In verse three here, Isaiah says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then at the end of this passage in verse six, he says, shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Now it's important to understand before we go any further into Isaiah chapter uh, 12 here, and we've talked about this before in previous sermon series as well, but the Bible has a very different definition of joy than we tend to give it uh, in our culture these days. We tend to use that word joy the same way that we tend to use the word happy, right? We like to think of them as synonyms for each other, two different words but they mean the same thing. Happiness is joy, joy is happiness. They're the same thing, the same feeling, the same emotion. The only problem though, is that they're not actually the same thing. Joy and happiness aren't synonyms for each other. They aren't just two words that mean the same thing, and so we can't swap them out for each other as easily as we like, at least not biblically. That's because however else our culture might define those two things, joy and happiness, the Bible, biblically speaking, uh, defines them very differently from each other as two very different things, two very different emotions or ways of being, and so as such, it's important not to mix them up. Let's start with happiness. At its most basic, happiness is a response emotion. Uh, It's an emotion that responds to or reacts to something. Specifically, it responds to or reacts to our circumstances in our lives. For instance, if my circumstances are good, then I'm going to be happy, right? But if my circumstances aren't good, things going on in my life aren't the way that I like them, then I'm not going to feel happy. I'm going to feel something else instead, right? Anger or frustration or sadness. That's how happiness works. That's how it functions. It's a response to what's going on around us and whether or not our circumstances are the way that we like them, okay? What that means is that happiness can be kind of a fickle thing. It can be a fickle thing because our circumstances can very quickly and very easily change. They can shift, they can look different. And so as a result, our happiness can too. One day we're happy, the next day we're not. What's the difference? Well, our circumstances have changed. Just as a side note, by the way, but this is why I find our culture's emphasis on happiness to be a little shallow. It's one of the things that our culture kind of talks about as a good foundation for life, right? We talk about the pursuit of happiness, or you'll hear people say things like, I'm just trying to be happy. I'm just trying to have a happy life. People pursue happiness like it's the only goal or good worth having in our lives. But the problem is that happiness is an ever-moving target. It's a constantly shifting aim. And so when we chase after that as the main goal for our lives, we continually come up empty, grasping at the wind, wondering why we're never as happy as we want to be. But joy, joy is different. 
You see, at least according to the Bible, joy isn't an emotion the same way that happiness is. It's, it's not a feeling. Instead, it's more of a, a state of being or a mode of existence, an identity or a way of operating. That's because biblically, joy isn't dependent on our circumstances. Instead, the way that the Bible talks about joy is that it's dependent on the Lord. That's where our joy as Christian believers comes from. It comes from God. It comes from who he is, what he's done, and what he is still yet to do. And so as a result, our joy as Christian believers never changes. Since he's the source, since God is the source of our joy and he doesn't change, our joy doesn't change either. Instead, it's meant to always be there, always in the background, humming along. I've used uh, this analogy before, but every time I talk about this, I I like to sort of explain it this way. Um, And I've been here for two years now, so I'm out of new analogies. Um, Whenever I talk about this, the difference between happiness and joy, I like to explain it like this. Back before Sarah and I got married, I lived uh, in an old house in downtown Milwaukee with a couple of friends of mine. Um, Like a lot of old houses, ours was built in either the late 1800s or early 1900s. It had a lot of character, and there was a lot that we really liked about the house. But also like old houses, it had a couple things that weren't quite so great about it, and one of them was that it wasn't very well insulated. It was a pretty drafty old house. And so as a result, during the winter, which lasts forever in Wisconsin, um, our house could get pretty cold. Well, what would we do when that happened? Well, we'd turn up the thermostat, right? Or we'd put on a sweater or we'd put on a pair of slippers. We would do something to change our circumstances. When our house would become uncomfortably cold, we would do something so that we could feel comfortable again. And that's what happiness is like. It's dependent on our circumstances. And so when things aren't going well, what we need to do is change our circumstances so that then we can be happy again. But joy, joy is like the air in the house. And regardless of how the air felt to us, whether it was hot or cold or somewhere in between, just right, the fact of the matter is that my roommates and I could still always breathe it. We could still breathe the air. And that's what our joy is like as Christians. Whether things are good or bad, happy or sad, right or wrong, or somewhere in between, just right, joy is still possible. Because as Christians, our joy isn't based on our circumstances. It's not based on what's going on around us or what is or isn't happening in our lives. Instead, it's based on the Lord. And so because of that, while our circumstances might change, our joy actually shouldn't. It remains the same. It's safe, it's secure. It's safe and secure because it's based on God. This, by the way, is why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Um, I'll be honest, that's a lot easier said than done. In fact, uh, just yesterday, when I was working through this sermon, and I was thinking all about joy, okay, I can always have joy in the Lord, um, no matter what my circumstances are, whether I'm happy or sad, whether I'm frustrated or patient or whatever it is, I can still be joyful, I can still be joyful, I can still be joyful. I had worked through this sermon again yesterday afternoon, all these ideas were up here in my mind, and then I was cooking dinner by myself with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. 
Sarah was out for dinner with a couple of friends, and so I'm cooking, and for about 45 minutes, as one of them screamed at me, and the other one kept taking toys away from him, leading to even more screaming, I just kept thinking, joy, joy is possible, joy is possible, joy is possible, joy is possible. (laughs) And then 45 minutes in, joy suddenly wasn't possible anymore, (laughs) because I exploded. And I thought, you're going to be preaching on this tomorrow. No matter your circumstances, joy is there. It's possible. And it is. It's just a state of mind. It's hard to do. It's easier said than done. When things aren't going our way, it's very easy to turn joy into happiness. Just like happiness to make it dependent on our circumstances and to only submit ourselves to joy when things are going our way. But when we do that, like me last night, we are missing out. We are missing out on the power, the beauty, and the grace. And I really mean it in every sense of that word, the grace of joy. We are missing out because we are missing out on the joy that is possible even in the circumstances we don't like. For instance, recently for my devotions, uh, I've been reading the stories of Christian martyrs. Odd, I know, but this is just the kind of person I am. And in reading those stories, one of the things that has struck me is their joy. I mean, these are people who have suffered, right? They have been oppressed. They have been ridiculed. They have been made fun of. They have been arrested. They have been imprisoned. They have suffered and been tortured. Some of them have even been killed or have family members who have been killed for their faith. And yet over and over and over in their stories, I read of their joy. For instance, just the other day, I was reading the story of Varya, an 18-year-old Russian woman who was imprisoned in the 1960s. Uh, She had given a public testimony about her faith, which in communist Russia was illegal. At one point, one of Varya's friends, another Christian named Maria, was able to visit her. And the author writes, this was the first time Maria had been able to visit Varya in prison. Her friend was thin, pale, and beaten, but her eyes shone with the peace of God and an unearthly joy. Maria asked through the iron bars, Varia, don't you regret what you did, giving your testimony in public? To which Varia answered, no. And if they would free me, I would do it again and would tell them about the great love of Jesus. Don't think that I suffer. I'm very glad that the Lord loves me so much and gives me the joy to endure for his name. The author writes a bit more of Varia's story and then concludes, months passed after their single visit in prison. Then Maria received a letter from Varia who had been moved to a Siberian labor camp. Varia wrote, my heart praises and thanks God that he has showed me the way to salvation. Now being on this way, my life has a purpose and I know where to go and for whom I suffer. I feel the desire to tell and to witness to everybody about the great joy of salvation that I have in my heart. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nobody and nothing, neither prison nor suffering. The sufferings that God sends us only strengthen us more and more in faith in him. My heart is so full that the grace of God overflows. It's been story after story like that. People who have suffered, people who have been oppressed, even people who have been killed, and yet they have joy in the Lord. Now, those martyrs didn't experience joy because their circumstances were the way they wanted them, right? Far from it. 
actually. In fact, for many of them, like Varia, their circumstances were about as not good as they could be. And that they experienced joy even in the midst of those circumstances because they had joy in the Lord. I'll be honest, as I've read those stories, I've wondered to myself, could I do that? Could I endure like that? Could I have joy in the Lord even in the midst of suffering? And my honest answer is, I'm not sure. But I think I want to. I think I want to have a joy like that. I want to have a joy like that in the Lord that nobody and nothing can take from me. Well, again, that's the kind of joy we see in our passage this morning. Now, truth be told, this passage, Isaiah chapter 12, it's, it's more like a psalm, actually, than it is a prophecy. As John Golden Gay says in his commentary here, this passage gives Judah a song to sing on that day, a song rather like the thanksgivings or testimonies that appear in the Psalms. And so with that in mind, what's this prophecy of thanksgiving in Isaiah 12 about? Well, quite simply, it's about God's salvation. Uh, in the chapter just before this, Isaiah 11, God's people, Israel and Judah, have received a promise of deliverance from God. Uh, we actually looked at part of that promise two weeks ago when we looked at the first 10 verses of that chapter and the Advent theme of hope, but it just keeps going from there through the rest of the chapter. For instance, in verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 11, Isaiah says, in that day, the day of deliverance, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. And then a little later, he says, the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. What Isaiah is basically saying there is that God is going to bring about a redemption, a salvation, a liberation for his people, Israel and Judah, like he did in the Exodus when he first brought his people out of Egypt. Remember, uh, we've talked about this in previous weeks in this series, the Israelites and Judeans are in exile here, or at least they will be. Uh, the Israelites probably already were by this point. They'd been exiled to Assyria, and the Judeans will be soon. They'll get exiled to Babylon. They probably haven't been quite yet, but it's going to happen. And yet, already, Isaiah offers them a promise. He offers them hope. The Lord will reach out his hand a second time, he says. He will reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. He will gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah. In short, he will work a redemption for his people as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Honestly, Isaiah 11 articulates an astounding promise for God's people. What, what Isaiah is saying here, more or less, is that God is guaranteeing his people redemption before they've even been exiled. He is telling them that he will save them before they even need 
saving. It's another example of God's love and grace towards his people before they even know they need that love and grace. And so it's in response to that then that God's people sing for joy. That's really what this chapter, chapter 12 is. It's sort of like a joyful praise song to God for his salvation. The first few verses are personal. Written in the singular, uh, it's as if an individual Israelite, a single Jewish believer, stands up in the company of God's people and sings a solo of thanksgiving to God. Isaiah writes, In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And then Isaiah sort of adds a a little note to that and says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's the first few verses of this passage. It's personal. It's a personal song of joy that gives praise to God for what he has done in an individual believer's life. But the second part is communal. The image here is is of all of God's people, all of Israel and Judah, hearing that solo of thanksgiving and then standing and joining their voices together as they sing, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Honestly, it kind of reminds me of a hymn I grew up with in the church that I attended when I was a kid. Earth and All Stars. Any of you know that song? No? You're going to make me sing it? (laughs) Earth and all stars, loud rushing planets, sing to the Lord a new song. There's a reason I don't normally sing. Oh, victory, loud shouting army, sing to the Lord a new song. He has done marvelous things. I too will praise him with a new song. You keep surprising me. I talked about U of M beating Ohio State and I got applause. (laughs) Now I sing and I didn't expect that either. (laughs) That's what's happening here. Israel is praising God for doing it again. He's done it again. He's done it again. He's done it again. Like so many times before, he's worked salvation for his people. He has come through and delivered them. He has raised them up and given them salvation. He has done glorious things. He has done marvelous things. I too, we too will praise him with a new song. And he has done this not because of anything his people have done or accomplished, but simply because of his grace because of his love. And so in response, Israel praises him. 
Walter Brueggemann writes in his commentary here, Israel has now received unexpected and unmerited goodness from Yahweh, and so is under obligation to give public voice to the miracle of homecomings and restoration. Thus Israel is restored, or sorry, thus Israel restored is called to give thanks, call upon the name, make known, praise, shout, sing for joy. Israel cannot now restrain itself, for the unexpected, undeserved, inexplicable has happened. It's the sort of thing about which one cannot keep quiet. Or as one of my seminary professors used to say, at some point you just have to stop talking about the gospel and just start singing about it instead. And my friends, the same is true for us. You see, like Israel and Judah, we too have received a promise. We too have received a guarantee of salvation. We too have received assurance of something that God will do. Like the Israelites and Judeans, our sins will be forgiven, our punishment will not last, and our exile will end as we too are restored to our God. We call that the gospel, right? It's the good news of salvation. And it tells us that like so many times before, God has worked an act of redemption. He has worked an act of restoration. He has worked an act of salvation to restore us to himself as his people. And he has done that through the Savior that we wait for, anticipate, look forward to in this season of Advent. Through his Son, Jesus Christ, God has brought us back into relationship with him. He came among us and lived with us. He taught and changed us. He died for us and then he rose to new life so that we can have new life too. In short, like God's Old Testament people, Israel and Judah, God has led us out of our exile, freed us from sin and death, and made us his people again. And so what is there left to do but sing, but praise, but shout for joy. I'll be honest, we Christians should be the most joyful people on earth. It should be our defining characteristic. It should be our lasting impression. It should be what we are most and best known for by everyone who encounters us. Because we have a salvation, an assurance, a guarantee that nothing can take away. As the children's author Phyllis McGinley once said, I have read that during the process of canonization, which is the process of making someone a saint, the Catholic Church demands proof of joy in the candidate. And although I have not been able to track down chapter and verse, I like the suggestion that dourness is not a sacred attribute. Dourness is not a sacred attribute. She's right. It's not. Dourness, crankiness, and joylessness have no place in the Christian life, even when your kids are screaming at you as you cook dinner. Instead, we need to be people of joy. We need to be people of joy because we are people of God. And as people of God, we have a joy that nothing can touch because we have a salvation that nothing can take away from us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me?
Lord, in this world, we encounter many things. We endure many circumstances that are not to our liking. We go through seasons of life that are not as we would have them. And we experience the full range of emotions that is natural, that is right, that is normal. But Lord, help us to remember that in you, we have joy. That even in the midst of our happiness, our sadness, our grief, our anger, our frustration, whatever it is we feel, our salvation in you never wavers. Our joy is found. Make us people of joy. Help us to believe it in, help us to walk it in, and we pray all of this in your name.